0: Welcome to The Lawyer's Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts...
1: Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street. And this is episode 197 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with my friend Tracy Ivanishin, who's a master of company culture, about how happy employees lead to happy clients.
2: Today's podcast is brought to you by Lawpace, Smokeball, Law Clerk and New Law business model. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support, so stay tuned and we'll tell you more about them later in the
1: show. So for a large number of the last few episodes, we've been kind of teasing out some of the distinctions we're seeing in the small firm marketplace. Around the roles of visionary CEO, of manager, owner, and of lawyer technician in the law firm and how Mm -hmm. we think it's important for law firms to start thinking about how those might be distinct roles or at least different hats to wear in a law firm. Yeah. And I wanted to take a few minutes to address what I see as something of a red herring in the conversation about that model, which is the rules around non-attorney ownership and fee sharing and how a lot of lawyers use that as a crutch to not even... Have a conversation around whether there's an opportunity to hire a non-lawyer business manager expert to be either the manager of the firm or the CEO of a firm with the idea that we can't do that because someone like that has to have equity or fee sharing as their compensation package. And I just don't think that's true. I guess it depends,
2: right? Like, if you're trying to start a firm or drastically grow a firm and you don't have the money to pay them in an ordinary startup, you would just hand out equity and ask people to take a chance on your business and go. So that option isn't available to you. But if you've grown your firm to a certain size and you've realized that your time is best spent serving clients and so you want to hire somebody to run the business, then yeah, you just pay them a salary, set metrics.
1: Yeah. I mean, the the fact that non-attorneys can't be owners of the firm and can't formally have fee sharing doesn't preclude goal-based compensation, it just can't be client fee-based compensation, and so if you can put together KPIs or a weekly scorecard that measure the kinds of things that a good CEO would need to do for your firm, you can have incentive compensation related to hitting those metrics, And honestly, a good CEO's metrics probably shouldn't be around just the fees generated by clients.
2: Yeah, I suppose. And even if you're bringing somebody in to help you grow the firm, um, maybe you can come up with sort of the baseline salary that just helps them keep the lights on and the bills paid in their house. And just about everything else is effectively contingent on
1: performance. Yeah, and I mean, I am no legal ethics expert, but I'm confident you can even come up with deferred comp mechanisms if the idea is that this person is taking a flyer on a growth-oriented firm.
2: So uh, step one is realizing that you need somebody to run your firm, and uh, assuming you've got to that point and you've even found a person that you want to don't let the ethics rules hold you back at that
1: point. Yeah, and I mean, to some degree, there is a large part of this conversation that I think is more theoretical than practical, which is that a new solo or small firm with no track record of marketing or revenue or client service model, even if they've got a great business plan, isn't gonna be the kind of firm that is attractive to someone who is Mm -hmm. a small business management expert. And so figuring out how you do a startup growth mentality model probably is not the kind of law firm, maybe with some exceptions that are interesting, that is going to attract this type of person. But an existing law firm with a track record of revenue and staff is one where rethinking how you compensate maybe more people than just this non-attorney can be a really interesting conversation and an opportunity to grow in a different way than I think most firms have ever given themselves the chance to.
2: You know, it's interesting. Non-lawyers obviously don't start law firms, which is an obvious thing, but it's also unusual, right? Normally, people start businesses who want to start, run, own a business, and that's the entire purpose behind it. Um, lawyers who start law firms are not necessarily planning to start and run a business because we have this different concept of what a law firm is. Only lawyers start law firms. And here we are trying to teach them all how to, you know, run them and grow them and all that kind of stuff. I don't well, know what to and do I that, mean, And
1: I think it's telling that Thomson Reuters and LexisNexis and LegalZoom are all mm-hmm. not owned by lawyers. Right. And they're the ones with billion dollar valuations <laughs> and whatever. And I, I don't honestly think that kind of the billion-dollar valuation mentality is particularly even useful. But For the
2: most valuable legal
1: businesses are not law firms. There, is, There is an yeah. interesting dynamic where if a non-lawyer looks at our industry and says, I want to grow a business, they're able to approach it in a way that potentially leads to billion-dollar things. And when lawyers approach starting a business in this industry, they often start $50,000 a year solo practices. And I don't even have judgment about that, but it is a fascinating dynamic in an ever-changing industry.
2: I don't have anything to add to that, but uh, interesting observation. I don't know what to do with that at this point, but lead into our conversations today, which are on a different subject. Uh, We'll talk first to Scott Clayson from TimeSolve, and then we'll jump into my conversation with Tracy.
3: This is Scott Clayson. I am the director of marketing for TimeSolve Corporation. We are a web-based time and billing software that's been around since 1999, providing services for not just law firms, but any professional services industry that has to track time and generate invoices.
2: And I'll say this because I ask my guests not to be salesy, um, but I'll say this. I think TimeSolve is the natural upgrade for firms that are sort of running out of features on things like FreshBooks or Harvest or Clio or or my case or whatever. When you're looking for more complex reports or you're looking to do more complicated timekeeping, I think TimeSolve is where you should be looking before you go into like the big ridiculous enterprise packages to try and get the more complex features. That's kind of where I think about TimeSolve. So
3: yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a a pretty good position statement. there. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) So we've
2: had a few conversations Conversations now, about productivity and, and business strategy and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And today, I want to talk about profitability because you have just come out with a really cool profitability quiz to help firms assess their profitability. And we'll mention the URL there. The link will be in the show notes. But maybe you could talk to us about how to think about that. What are some of the questions we should be asking or the things that we should be doing to figure out if our firm is as profitable as it ought to be?
3: Yeah, I mean, this really stemmed out of this development of this profitability assessment quiz. We've been around for close to 20 years. And so we, we feel like we have a lot of insight in working with a lot of firms about how to better track their time, generate their invoices, and do it in a more efficient manner. Because... All that work that we talk about when it comes to billing is non-billable work, right? When you create your draft invoices and you're cobbling together all your time entries and so on, because for any firm that is obviously billing by the hour, like most law firms, the hidden cost for your firm is time. And the more time you can spend on billable work, the more profits you can potentially make. And so we've learned a lot of these best practices over the years and came up with 15 questions that any firm really should be asking themselves on a regular basis to make sure that their time and billing, hygiene almost, if you will, <laughs> is is staying clean so that they're able to maximize all the billable time, as much billable time as possible.
2: Billing non-billable time has got to be one of the main things people ought to do, right?
3: Yeah, it's it's amazing. Very few firms will diligently track their non-billable time like they do their billable time. So in other words, as a as a timekeeper, if you're putting in five hours of billable time today, well, what'd you do those other three hours exactly? Mm-hmm. Track it and find out. And uh, what a lot of firms can learn in the long run is perhaps there's work being done By a high hourly rate professional that could be done by somebody with lesser experience. Maybe it's a task that, it's a research task that, well, apparently we could be doing that. We don't need our $350 an hour person doing it. It could be done by our $100 an hour para or whatever the case might be. So that's a way, again, to allocate your resources more efficiently.
2: I suppose also uh, your non billable time is time spent working that you aren't getting paid for. And so You know, the difference between clearing $100,000 a year in profit when you're working eighty hours a week versus forty hours a week is pretty substantial. And so if there's ways to cut down on that time that you're not getting paid for and that you're not home with your family, right. It's worth knowing. <laughs> right, right. And then
3: you can find like, hey, maybe this time I'm saving I spend two or three hours a day doing this this task that is non billable. Well, I, I could hire somebody at at a you know whatever rate and I'm more than like gonna make up for paying that person with my gain in billable time, right? Yeah. So and again, just it, it's you're able to grow your business faster and better by tracking that non-billable work. And then the other couple of things we like to work with with firms is do you have a time tracking policy even in place? Mm -hmm. Are there expectations that are actually written down of you will enter all your time by the end of each day or you at the very minimum or maybe it's at the end of each week, I should say, that should be really at the bare minimum. Truly, you should be doing it every single day. And of course, the best case scenario is you're doing it in real time. So those are some of the things like you have a policy in place. Is it written down? And then just getting back Back to the fundamental. Like how much time are you actually doing on your billing each month per timekeeper? Are you spending – five hours a month on just your billing work well imagine if you could cut that in half that you've just gained two and a half hours of billable time so it's those type of questions that we're asking over the course of this profitability quiz that at the end we'll we'll kind of give you a score and say you're in the best category average and, and poor and then you know we'd like to talk to you about how we could potentially help your firm increase your profits and so everybody can be in that best category cool
2: so if you want to take the quiz you can go to timesolve.com slash profit assessment that's Timesolve with noecom slash profit assessment and we will obviously have the link in the show notes for you thanks so much Scott
3: hey thanks Emily appreciate it
0: much for having me on your show. It's Tracy Ivanition here. I'm the CEO of Uplevel and Uplevel is a client contact center. So we provide all types of inbound and outbound solutions, but most relevant for today, our focus is on creating like the best intake processes out there and the best remote teams for law firms. So that's how we sort of fit in with the law firm side.
2: Cool. Hi, Tracy. Thanks for being with us. Uh, you call your business a client contact center. Which is because, like, I don't think there's a lot of people who do what you do, or at least they don't have a big presence in the legal world. My understanding is you sort of virtual receptionist would be kind of maybe a third of what you do. um, But what you really are is sort of an outsourced assistant who can deal with making and placing calls and doing the client communications full stop. Is that right? Right.
0: Well, actually, I'm so glad you asked that question because truly reception is not one of our areas of focus in the law firm world. Oh, nice. Actually, We work actually quite complementary with existing reception solutions. So whether your reception solution is in-house or whether you outsource that and have a virtual receptionist, we dovetail really well with those existing services. Our focus is actually on something um, that we feel is quite different, and that is specifically on that intake process. And we just love that critical intake connection. Um, We feel like it's that first really meaningful kind of deep conversation that your clients get um, with the firm. And it really helps them feel like there's a great fit. And like they really understand that, you know, they have found the right place. Now they've got a partner to help them navigate. So it's really we focus more on the intake side of things than anything else. We do inbound and outbound calls. But I would say it's really, you know, it's that intake piece. That so is. you'd
2: also do like scheduling or rescheduling and things like Absolutely. that. But yeah. Yep. So when you say that my brain immediately goes to, okay, so this is probably more for firms that have a system like that can give you here are the questions we need answered, the topics we need more detail on. And here's the criteria for whether or not you schedule an appointment now or um, schedule a further call for me to talk to. Does it or do you help firms come up with that system? Or do you really want to plug into an existing system? I guess, what does your onboarding process look like for a new firm?
0: Well, that's a great question. And so what we do is we love to work with the firm, find out what it is they're doing now. And then if there's a way we can help up level that intake process and offer suggestions. So we work very closely and partner with Billy Tarasio with Modern Law Partners. And um, so we work together. Sort of helping law firms figure out what is the best way to tweak intake. One of the things we do is look at the baseline. What are their experiences so far in terms of, let's say, for instance, how many new clients do they get per month using their existing intake process? And then we sort of take that baseline, and once we've tweaked the intake process and help them design like a really great process and they outsource it to us then we say okay what happened so for instance in one case, so
2: let me sorry to interrupt you but like so somebody come can come to you and be like you know i i need to figure out how to get intake off my plate and then you will work with them to figure that out
0: absolutely yeah okay Well, I just was going to give an example of how, you know, when you tweak the intake process, because it is such a critical part of the process, and it's one of those things that when it has sort of its own team and its own focus and kind of undivided attention, and you can focus a bit on tweaking that process, you can see some really immediate results. You, in one recent case, we were able to sort of double the number of new clients brought on just in month one, and we've been able to kind of keep that consistent without changing anything else. So without changing the source of leads or even the number of leads, just really Paying a different type of attention to the type of leads that they have. So I know that we're chatting about, you know, corporate culture a little bit today and happy employees and how it impacts it. And I guess I feel that it's so relevant to the entire business and the entire firm, of course, and and how happy employees interact with clients and and create those good client relationships and the intake process. I think why I think it's, it's so key here is that it's that very first connection and meaningful sort of relationship building moment where I think if your culture is great throughout your company, And if your clients can feel it in that very first intake conversation, it's just going to bring so much success.
2: Let's go ahead and run with that. And because yeah, we were going to pivot to talk about employee culture and what makes employees and happy and why that works out to happy clients. But let's start with culture. And tell me, when you think about culture, why do you think it matters? And how does it manifest in the intake process?
0: That's a great question. To me, I think that some people may have the sense that corporate culture, it may seem fluffy or intangible. Or 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 like bullshit. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And some people also feel like, you know, my team may be too small to really feel like I have to concentrate on that. It's just happening on its own. And that, that may be true. But what I feel and what I think the research shows is that great culture is directly related to loyal, happy Clients. And I don't think there's any better indicator of success than the number of happy, loyal clients that you have. And I'll give you a quick example. I was um, speaking just recently at an event in Africa. One of the things I really, as I mentioned, I really love talking and thinking and brainstorming about culture. And I had a chance to speak at this event. I'm part of a group that is an international group that meets and shares experiments on corporate culture. So that group is um, put together through the Virgin Group of Companies. And so, as you can imagine, you've got people from all over the world and mostly large companies and some small companies like ours are smaller and it's really fun because you're sharing what you've tried that's working in each of these different groups to really create a great a great Mm -hmm. culture so I think that when we talk about what makes employees happy at work and you know in any department whether it's intake or anywhere else what makes people happy at work there's really five elements of 100 um, percent human workplace which is the virgin sort of definition and that would be the five elements would be things uh, and these aren't rocket science for us of course and in different parts of the world they would show up differently but the five elements are respect belonging growth equality and purpose And so when you are designing your firm or recreating your culture or trying to redesign a culture that maybe has had a bumpy spot, if you look at those five elements and say, how am I going to make sure that each of these five elements shows up every day in the workplace? You're definitely going to have a recipe for success. And there's recent studies also that talk about specifically maybe the top 10 things that make employees the most happy. And I think they really fit into these elements and they're things like transparency, employee appreciation, relationships with colleagues, relationships with leaders, sort of the corporate values and then the leadership style of the company for sure. And it's kind of surprising and nice to note that, you know, pay and compensation, of course, is always going to be on the list mm-hmm. and it's important, but it's actually dropped down to number eight.
2: Well, and I've, I've heard before that, um, you know, like Google, I think, may have been doing the data project that got us this conclusion, but I'm not sure. Um, it's that, you know, pay doesn't matter after a certain point. Yes. Right. Paying people enough and you're good it makes, you know, people need to have their needs taken care of, but it doesn't make them more happy to get more money.
0: Yes. And I, I think that is true. And so I think it's great to talk about that, but it- I think what's important is to think, well, then how tangibly do I make that happen? Like, what could I specifically do? And I think one of the reasons I love being part of this this group, this virgin group of um, companies across the world, is that we have large companies like Google and Zappos and Unilever on the uh, on the committee. But also, we have small companies like mine. I think we've got about 150 employees now, and uh, so we're not that big in, in relation. But um, what's great is we also don't have the budget, so we don't have the size and we don't have the budget of the these big companies but what it proves is that you can focus on culture you can focus on culture no matter what size you are or no matter your budget there's all kinds of what i'll call sort of cheap and cheerful things you can do to create and enhance your culture
2: so remind us what are the five elements of happy employees that you mentioned respect belonging
0: yep respect belonging growth equality and purpose
2: i'm taking notes but i want to make sure our listeners have a chance to take <laughs> notes too um yeah cool. Maybe we could talk about each one of those. But but first, uh, as you were talking about culture, it struck me that culture is kind of the connecting fiber between your reputation and your brand, right? Like your brand is, is what you say you're all about. And reputation is what other people actually think you're all about. And if those are out of sync, it means you don't have a strong culture, I think. Because if you do, um, then those things will be, should be very strongly connected. And it's like, you know, so it's your website says... That you're, you know, what you're, whatever, you're a compassionate negotiator of a family, a divorce lawyer, or something like that. And then if yes. people pick up the phone and there's a harsh, annoyed greeting, there's already a disconnect. You've said you're compassionate, and now you're being an impatient person. Or um, if you, if you're, yes. if your brand is, you know, we're an edgy law firm for startup lawyers, and people walk into a a dumpy office in the warehouse district, like you're causing a disconnect. And I think I think if you really paid attention to culture, you would find that it would be reflected in your choice of office, in the way you answer your phone, in the way you build your website, and it would help to align your culture and your brand at the same time.
0: Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think that for sure it's, it is about that gap between what you say and what you do. And I think you're right, words totally matter. So as an example, one of our core values is serve with joy passion and compassion and so when people call us you know they're going to get those they're going to hear those values as we ask them their story and as we hear about you know why what do they need and what are their fears and what are the things that you know if we do a deep dive on you know what are the impacts of the situation that's brought them to calling the law firm today and really kind of affirm what they're experiencing and, you know, walk them through that process in a way that's like completely compassionate. And to do that, we have to make sure we're hiring the right people that we're hiring curious people that we're hiring people with tons of empathy that we're hiring people with great mental agility, who can hear the story and, you know, pivot and uncover, you know, some of those needs and really connect with the client so that they really feel like, okay, I found my spot. I found Mm -hmm. my spot. I know they're going to help me navigate this situation whatever it is so um. You know, I think I think that part's really important. One of the things that I found really fascinating, there's a, a Gallup poll. I think as people are listening to this, if they are thinking about their law firm and thinking about their culture, they probably can picture some people who are, you know, really enthusiastic and totally aligned with their values and maybe some other people where there might be a question mark. Mm-hmm. Are they really aligned with our values? Like you said, is there a gap between what the company is saying and the way that employee is behaving? And uh, interesting, this Gallup poll that came out, I think last year, it was saying that, Worldwide, 87% of employees are unengaged. Hmm. So, when you do the math, which I'm not that great at, I think that means 13% of employees are engaged. So when I heard that it's a stat, a big
2: culture gap. <laughs>
0: it is a big culture gap. And when I first heard that, of course, I was like scanning faces in my mind across our organization, and uh, out of the 150 or so employees, I you know a couple of faces came to my my mind, and I was talking with a fellow who said he's got a he's got a word for that. He's got a phrase for the disengaged folks, and he calls it resignation without a letter. Hmm. (laughs) And, uh, we all know the cost of having employees who have, you know, resigned, but not handed in their letter yet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, they've just sort of physically and mentally checked out. And so, And
2: and I would say this is not like, this is way more like, I think the, the office worker, I think those of us with, you know, white collar professions may tend to think like, Oh, they must be talking about like assembly line workers. I don't think that's right. I think there are plenty of people who are working on an assembly line who are proud of the work they do, proud to be able to provide for their family, um, whatever, and and are engaged in the work that they do. I think it's more like, you know, if you think about the movie The Office um, and the concept of a bullshit job. There was actually another great podcast by um, uh, Hidden Brain where um, they talked about bullshit jobs and how shockingly many people are convinced that they have a job that does not matter in the world. Corporate lawyers, high, high on the list actually. (laughs) But, um, but I think that's at least as much where the disengagement comes from is the lack of those things, the lack of engagement, no respect, no feeling of belonging or purpose in in the work that you do.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, for us, we spend a lot of time, we have an entire team that's just dedicated to culture. Their only job is to find, nurture, invest in, all the right people. And then to make sure that once they're here, that they have the best employee experience that they can. And that's because we think it's really the right thing to do. It's a good legacy. And secondly, um, we know that it makes for far better service and far happier clients. So, someone told me once, you know, if you spend 33% of your life at work, you want to make sure that it matters, especially if you're spending Mm -hmm. the other 30% is sleeping, you know, you don't have a lot of sort of spare time. So we want to make sure that matters. So we do spend a lot of time with our employees. And I can I'm happy to help anybody with this just really getting wrapping their heads around their purpose. And certainly in the legal intake role, it's it's so simple to really connect the dots on purpose, because we can all think of a time when we needed a lawyer for something. In some cases, it was for a happy occasion. In some cases, it was for not a happy occasion. And we can all sort of connect into that moment where we had to pick up the phone and explain what we needed and hope we were going to find somebody who was a fit and somebody who is going to care. And if your intake process is designed properly, and if you hire the right people, you're going to know That you found people who are truly, truly curious and truly compassionate and they want to know the whole story. So the purpose here is taking that tough moment in somebody's life and helping them feel connected and not alone as quickly as possible and helping them tell their story to someone who's really, really listening. And then connecting them with the attorney, the right attorney, who is going to see them through and navigate this whole confusing, complicated, emotional process, whatever it may be. And, you know, to get behind that and to understand the purpose behind that is, is so simple. Not every job in the world is as easy to connect the dots on the purpose, but this one, it's really, really clear. And so what I love about the team is just watching them really embrace the purpose and the legacy that they're going to leave by caring to the extent that they do, and making the right connection. So I, I love to see that come together. You know, when we talked about the people who are disengaged, I think about the cost, you know, there's a lot of costs to that for the person themselves who's disengaged, you know, there's a huge loss in terms of their potential as a human, and a huge loss of joy. And for the company, there's a huge loss of profit and, you know, potential clients and all kinds of things that are going wrong there. So if we focus on culture and we do some really easy kinds of tangible steps, we can move the needle and get people onto that engaged side, or we can identify who's maybe not going to make that leap and help them vote with their feet.
2: So we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Uh, And when we come back, I'd like to talk more about connecting happy employees to happier clients. So we'll be right back.
4: Smokeball practice management software exists to streamline small law firms and reduce the stress of running a small business. With Smokeball, your firm is much more organized, productive, and profitable, meaning you and your staff can breathe easy with less stress. Visit smokeball.com slash lawyerist today to learn more and book a demo. Like what you see? Lawyerist podcast listeners are eligible for 50% off onboarding. With Smokeball at your firm, it's less stress and more success. If you're not 100% happy with your law practice right now, chances are you want more. More income from your practice, more fulfillment from your work, and more freedom to enjoy your life. There's a new law business model that is allowing passionate attorneys to reclaim their lives and love practicing law again. Alexis Neely has been training lawyers for over a decade on the new law business model she created to build her own million dollar law practice. And now, the lawyers she has trained in that new law business model have their own high six and seven figure law practices, all without sacrificing time with their families and only working with clients they love to serve. It is possible to experience the exhilaration of a thriving law practice, do the most meaningful legal work, have a real impact in your clients' lives and have complete control over your schedule. Discover this new law business model now by watching the free video workshop series at newlawbusinessmodel.com slash lawyerist. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those who use traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage Program, you can easily accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 48 state bars. LawPay.
2: Okay, we're back. So, Tracy, we've talked a bit about what makes for happy employees, respect, belonging, equality, purpose, growth. I think if we dwelled on those, we could spend another couple of hours talking about them. (laughs) Um, So maybe another time. I think we should talk about, so how do we connect the dots here and and making employees happy to work for us, how does that result in happier clients? Right. And where, where should we start thinking about that?
0: Okay, well, I would say that connecting the dots there... I would say your happy and engaged employees are going to have lots more experience and a far different mindset to deal with all of your clients. So for instance, in our company, we have an average staff tenure of 8.9 years, which in the call center world is really unheard of. Mm. Most often it's sort of less people report less than 26 months of average tenure. But what that means to the clients, regardless of, of what industry they're in, what that means to the clients is they are getting employees who obviously are fairly happier, they wouldn't still be there, But also the benefit, the direct benefit of the client is they have years and years of experience. So when they come across a hurdle or see an opportunity, they've got tons of experience that guides them towards how can I be most helpful and how can I, you know, protect our brand or our client's brand while going through any particular process. They just bring, you know, 8.9 years of experience versus 26 months. So that to me is the first correlation for sure. I think also most companies, maybe they don't do surveys or they don't sort of check in with their employees all that often, but um, there is a trend to doing engagement surveys. And one of the things that we measure is we ask our employees two different questions so that we are sort of testing that it's, it's true in both cases. And so we ask the question around, do they believe that we are 100% focused on our clients' needs. And we also ask another congruency testing question down the road in this survey that asks, is client satisfaction a priority at up level? And what we have found is by asking that question, you can tell immediately how aligned your team is. So in our cases, we've had very, very high. The consultants were quite surprised. In one case, it was 98% and the other it was 99%. So is that, is,
2: is that anonymized then? Because I'm curious because there's an obvious right answer to those questions. Mm,
0: it's totally Totally anonymous. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. Completely anonymous. There's all kinds of processes in place to ensure and not every, you know, just to be completely transparent, you know, not every part of the survey was as glowing as that one. Mm-hmm. There were lots of areas where we we had some great strengths and other areas, which is what you're hoping to uncover is where can we do better? Where can we create more engaged employees? And so we had some great areas to focus on, but what I loved is that it shows you that when you've got a, a tenure, you've got a really engaged team, they know the focus is on creating a great solution for the client. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it was really, it was tested to be true. So I thought that was excellent and um, probably worth doing the survey to, to, to be certain that that's the case. <laughs> and also to find out, and, and this is, goes back to, you know, creating this great happy tribe, is finding out where are the pain points? Because no company's going to get it right every single day. So where are the pain points? What can we do to... um Sort of smooth those out. What we did was, and in any case in the survey where we scored less than 86%, that was our choice to choose that number, we said we're going to create a focus group and we're going to invite Our what we call our work family. We're going to invite our work family to Mm -hmm. come together, and whoever wants to sit on that particular focus group, let's find out how we solve it, and then we're going to retest six months later and find out did we move the needle. And uh, so I think that that definitely helped us as well.
2: I mean, mean, we dwelled on purpose for a a while in talking about happy employees, but it seems like this is probably just an extension of that, right? Like if you understand what you're doing and why it matters in the world then you know at least on your good days you're going to want to do that thing because otherwise you aren't accomplishing that purpose you're just slacking off it does seem to me that if your employees are happy and engaged and motivated then the natural outcome of that is that they will do a better job serving your clients unless your values are your you know your cultural your values are way off From what your clients need, Yes, I suppose. True.
0: (laughs) That brings up a great point, though, too, is values. And some companies spend time on creating values, and um, they do a great job of keeping them in front of their employees and keeping their employees, you know, really active and focused on it. We have all kinds of ways to sort of keep our values. We've got core values, which are basically sort of the formalized values that tell the world what we're all about and what we stand for. And then we have these internal what we call care values, which are kind of a bit irreverent and fun and and short. And uh, there are internal values that sort of say, how do we show up as a work family and what? as a new person walking in, what should I expect and how will I be judged? And I think the thing about even the core values and the care values is they have to be used every day to figure out who's the right fit from a recruiting standpoint, um, who's the right fit for promotions. Like based on these core values and care values, we use them to measure success in in so many different ways. We use them to make decisions. Any decisions that are made at the senior management or leadership level are all tracked against the core values and the care values. We have these things called care value cards. Could you
2: tell us what your core values and your care values are? Because I'm curious, because like when we did, when we decided to, you know, make our culture explicit by coming up with our core values, we decided to work on making sure that, you know, our sort of our internal and external values were the same and trying to unify them all. And we briefly discussed your approach, but ultimately decided not to use it. But now I'm super curious, like, I want to hear what they are so that I can um, see how that works in practice, too. Because I don't think there's a right or a wrong way to do it. We just we picked one way. and, And I want to I want to hear more about your approach.
0: Yeah, well, we spent a lot of time on our values. So our core values, we probably developed those about three years ago. And every person in the company was involved in some way. There's a long process, which we won't get into now. But it, we really looked at it and said, we just can't have something that's on the wall that doesn't mean something and that isn't used every single day. So the core values were a long process with voting and refining the words, etc. And then the care values, mm-hmm. it was even more fun because we knew that these were sort of our tribe, you know, rules and how people could be they are compensated based on how they show up against the care values and all that kind of thing so I'll I'll go there are six of them so it might be lengthy but I'll maybe just pick a couple and see how you feel about them so core value number one is deliver excellence and extraordinary value and so we took that value and said well what's the internal version of that what's the care value what does this look like as far as our work family and how we're going to treat each other oh
2: so they're kind of like they're not opposite sides but they're complementary they're
0: complementary so the care value on that one so the core value is deliver excellence and extraordinary value and then the care value is take a walk on the wow side and uh, gotcha. so we have t-shirts and mugs and all kinds of stuff. And they, all they, there was a big contest on designing the graphics. We had a graphic designer. I mean, cabin. being
2: a dork about your values is one of the ways to get people into it. Yeah, for Yeah, sure. for
0: sure. It's so fun. And yeah. uh, so another one might be, um, embody trust and integrity. That's the core value, embody trust and integrity. And the internal care value is got your back. And uh, so that's sort of how, how that works. And we have contests around this. We have um, Slack channels so people can notice when these values are being observed and we can reward people on it. And uh, we did a really fun thing. We'd, so we so same thing with our mission statement. We really, we did a long, long process with the mission statement, but we didn't want it to just be something that gets stale or is just, you know, on the wall. So we created teams, uh, 10 people on each team and we gave them the summer to come up with a sort of three to four minute video that could be any anything at all that sort of conveyed the mission statement it didn't have to be the mission statement word for word but it had to sort of convey the spirit of our mission and uh, so they could do anything they wanted and then every Friday we unveiled a different team's video and uh, so some of them were like they one group did a cooking show one group did a um, flash mob Another group did a rap. Hmm. And uh, so every group sort of just decided how they wanted to sort of put this thing, bring it to life. And then we have the staff family picnic at the end of the summer. So we had everybody's family was there and they all got to vote On the one that they loved the most and uh, the the members of that team got some really awesome prizes and got theirs published and so we just try and find very inexpensive and fun ways to keep those values and the mission in front of everyone because it does tie back to this purpose that we talked about you know the studies that show what what makes people happy are things like transparency and do they have a friend in the workplace? And do they like the leadership style? This is all about relationships and building relationships and making sure that we're you know, we're totally aligned. And so some of the other things that we do that are kind of interesting is we have these things called happiness hangouts where we connect people kind of randomly and give them time to just get to know each other. We have these small groups where people have common interests. So things like we had an empty nest club, we had a golfing group, we had a cooking club, which actually I think was just really a wine drinking club in disguise. <laughs> it looked like it we were cooking. Right. Yeah, it looked like we were cooking, but really just
2: Sounds like book club. Too. Yeah. Exactly.
0: <laughs> and uh, I think we had a grandparents' club. There was all kinds of things that really cause it's about connecting people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that when you really do have great relationships with your work family, it's going to come across. You're going to hear it um, when you're talking to clients, you know, in any case. so.
2: I mean, I think this is why the word tribe comes up so much when talking about culture and values is that that is one way to define sort of a social tribe is a group with a shared set of values That's and, you know, in jokes and things like that. And, uh, you know, you, you, you know, those values are part of how you do it. But one of the natural things that you can expect from that is that, you know, people should, you know, drama crops up everywhere, but in, in general, people should enjoy the people that they work with and and um, be engaged with each other in the workplace, at least. If you feel like you're just sort of showing up to work with the same people every day and then going home and there isn't a whole lot more beyond that, then it's a pretty good chance that people are disengaged with your company, I think.
0: I think you're right. And, you know, if we don't focus on culture, if we don't build it, one's going to form on its own. Yeah. And it may not be great, or it may not be profitable. And there's this African proverb, which I really love that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And you've probably heard Mm -hmm. of that. But I think that when we're thinking about, you know, creating culture takes time, and do we have the time? And are we big enough? Or do we have the budget? All of those things, if we want to go far... We do have to go together. So it's about how do we then, within our budget, within our means, and within the size of our company, what small or medium things, or maybe even large, but what things can we do that create that tribe so that our clients know consistently what can they expect? Yeah, something and you just
2: said is, is totally on point, right? You have a culture whether you want to or not. And I think what's what's not explicit in that statement is that when it comes time to assess how you feel about your employees, you are judging them based on the culture, whether or not you've explicitly stated it. True. Right? Because like, yeah. I'm unhappy with this person because they're not doing what I need in the way that I need them. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot of cultural judgment wrapped up in that statement. And if you haven't made it explicit, you haven't helped that employee understand what's expected of them and how you're going to be judging their performance. And it it wasn't fair and upfront in the hiring process. And it hasn't been fair during, you know, in your management relationship so far and you kind of don't have a right to expect that of them unless you've made it clear you know whether it's through explicit core values care values internal external whatever yes if you haven't had a conversation about here's what our expectations are whether you call it culture or not, you, I don't think you've been fair to people. You haven't set up the framework for them to to have happy employees in that relationship.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, even when you're doing coaching, a lot of we've we've got, you know, things are pretty systematized um, in our process. So but we've got coaching um, processes and coaching forms and they all speak to the values. We ask them to rate themselves on these values, So it's not something that comes up sort of at the performance appraisal just once a year. I mean, it is those values are part of the, their performance appraisal, but it's something that comes up in their monthly coaching. Where do you see yourself? How can I help you? Is there any value that doesn't seem like a fit to you? How could I help you re envision it? Or would you be happier in a different environment? And so it's really like that coaching up or coaching out and, uh, and just making sure, like you say, people know what the what the expectations are. And you know, hopefully they just love it. And if they love it, they're going to stay longer. And if they stay longer, you're going to have much more experienced talent to work with your clients. So I think it's good. And one of the other things I wanted to mention is, you know, this purpose and then vision and getting people on side. One of the examples that we use, so there's this great quote by Jay Abraham, and it says, a customer is one who purchases goods or services. A client is under the care and protection of another. Mm-hmm. And so when we hire and all the way through the training process, everyone in our organization knows that very simple, but key distinction between the customer and the client. And when I'm out talking to clients, I'll say to them, you know, I, I, I promise them they're going to be under our care and protection, which is very different than purchasing a service. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I go out to see them, you know, every six months, I'll say to them, you know, do you feel that way? Can you feel it? And they'll say yes. And I'll say, can you tell me how, how do you know that you're under our care and protection? And they'll give me tangible examples of how they know and I come back and feed that back to the team so that they understand that you know really this is the key it it is part of the culture it's the whole it's the bedrock that says our clients really matter. They're under our care and protection and everything we're going to do is going to make them stronger and make our company stronger. And uh, they get that feedback, those real tangible things that the client actually saw and felt. And so I think it just links it back.
2: So we've talked about measuring happy clients based on sort of your, your employees subjective impression of how that's working. But, um, what about, what about going out and surveying your own clients? Um, and, and for you, I guess that means the law firms or other customers that you work for, but also their customers who end up dealing with you as sort of the outward facing representative of your first party clients.
0: Yes. So, so for law firms specifically, there's a, a really fantastic NPS process that we go through mm-hmm. to find out how how happy are the law firm's clients. So we, we look at all kinds of data, and we do this in partnership, of course, with um, Billy and uh, Modern Law Practice. We look at all kinds of data that says how effective – has the intake process been so how many leads do we have how many leads got scheduled how many of those scheduled showed all of that and we want to make sure we see those numbers going up and up and up to just prove that the intake process is working really really well and then so those those numbers help the law firm i think those are a good indicator of how happy the law firm is because their goal of um, having a really phenomenal intake process is has been met and we can measure that with all the data and that's great um as far as the law firm's clients the the NPS or the you know, voice of the customer feedback is part of the process, part of what we do. And so we measure that as well. And I think all of these different KPIs come together and give you a good picture about how happy are the law firms and how happy are the law firm's clients.
2: I'm just curious. So you you have a strong and well-defined culture Um, at up level, I'm curious as to, I'm sure some of your customers, whether they're law firms or not, because I don't, um, make the mistake of thinking that everything has to be legal specific, but, um, I'm wondering if your, um, customers who have, who also have strong values and culture, um, what happens when it's not compatible with yours? Would you just not take them on as a client? Mm -hmm. Um, or would you instruct your receptionist to like, okay, so for this call, we're going to adopt a really aggressive tone whenever we answer the phone for this (laughs) this client.
0: Oh, that's a great question. Do you know, I haven't so far met a firm that didn't want to have a really, you know, meaningful and professional intake process. There Mm -hmm. certainly are firms who, who would like one type of client maybe as a priority versus other types of clients. So once we know what you know who their who their ideal client is uh, then Mm -hmm. we can definitely work with knowing you know what's the criteria what are some things that would say whether it's jurisdiction or you know a variety of things well i mean
2: i could for example i could see a a a law firm client saying look like don't let them ramble on about telling their life story cut them off i need the answer to these five questions and i want to see that and if they answer them and you know here are my criteria um if they answer yes to these questions then uh, schedule an appointment with me right away. If they answer no, get them off the phone and don't waste my time.
0: Absolutely, yes, you're you're totally correct. And if, especially depending on the type of law that you know is being practiced and so on, or or just you know various personalities of law firms. So yeah, we definitely it's very customized. So we spend a lot of time uh, making sure that we're like a really trained extension of their team. We use their systems. We use whatever processes they have in place, unless they'd like some input on ideas that could you know up level them. So we definitely custom and you're right there are certainly times where there are things that are deal breakers and and even different clients who are calling in you definitely get the vibe you know it's all about reading and rapport building and um, that kind of thing and you can read when people don't have time for the long story and uh, they're ready to book and we can definitely we can definitely customize it we always look at we do keep track of sort of average call length and looking at what are our goals and and uh, how are they working out and how's that impacting that ratio of leads to scheduled to leads to shown appointments so it's there is a lot of analysis done by modern law around making sure that that data is telling us the story about are we meeting that client's needs and you're right different different firms have different styles so it's totally customizable
2: tracy thanks so much for talking with us today about happy clients and happy employees and culture and values it's been a lot of fun
0: oh thank you i've really enjoyed it too thanks sam